Let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing, obey. Amen. Today, we begin with a question. Have you ever in your life played a musical instrument? Have you ever turned to someone and tell them if you've ever played a musical instrument and what it was? Have you ever played a musical instrument? What did you play? Larry Beal, did you play a musical instrument? He played the piano. Okay, Dave Hoisington, ever play a musical instrument? The tuba. Why did you play the instrument? Was it because that somebody thought that it would be a good idea for you to play the musical instrument? Was it because you wanted to be part of a music group? Did you look up to some musician and hope that you could play like she did? Did you hope to gain some status with a pretty girl or a handsome boy? In the fifth grade, I decided that I would join the school band. I wanted to do this because I'd heard some other kids talking about it over lunch and I thought that it would be a good way for me to fit in. So I walked to the music teacher and I told her that I wanted to join the school band and she said, well, do you have an instrument? And I said, no. And she said, well, could your parents buy you an instrument? And I shook my head, no. And she said, well, that's fine because you can borrow an instrument from the school. And I said, great. And then she told me that there was only one instrument left for me to borrow. And that instrument was the French horn, which was not at all what I had in mind, because I figured that would do the opposite, you know, for what I was looking for, because I knew that all the cool kids played the saxophone. But I took the French horn just to be nice, and then I brought it back the next day and unceremoniously left it outside of the music teacher's office. <laughs> that is one way to love a musical instrument. I heard Brian McClary, McLaren tell another story about loving a musical instrument. He told the story about a violin maker who knew how to make the most beautiful violins. And in his old age, he agreed to take on a couple of apprentices. And they were so dedicated to this way of making a violin, just the way that he made it, that they traveled all around the world to learn from the violin maker. 
which was good because the first and most important step in making the violin the way that the violin maker made it was in procuring the correct wood for the instrument. And the finest wood, the story goes, came from trees that grew in Switzerland during the Little Ice Age between the 16th and 19th centuries. And so, the husband and the wife, the apprentices, and the violin maker traveled off to Switzerland and knocked on the doors of houses made from this particular wood. Sometimes they were able to convince the homeowner to let them in and up into the attic to look at the boards in the eaves. When they did, the violin maker would take a board in his hand and he held it just so that he could feel the weight of the board and then he spit on the board and he rubbed it with his thumb. And by this he could tell if the board was worth $100 a foot or $1,000 a foot. And the apprentices looked on with eager anticipation. Finally, after watching him time and time again, he handed the board off to them. That's another way to love a musical instrument. To love it so much that you will travel the world to see it born the way that it should be born to look on as another handles it with dexterity and wisdom, to patiently wait until it's your turn to touch. That is quite a way to love a musical instrument. When I heard McLaren tell this story, he used it as encouragement to pass along what we know and love about our faith tradition, that our faith tradition is the instrument. Pass it on, he said, to those who are waiting patiently, looking for an opportunity to experiment with their faith and what they're learning about their faith. Which is all well and good, but I have to wonder, where are all the apprentices? Are there really ones out there so desperately in love with the instrument of their faith that they will travel the world to touch it and taste it and take it on themselves. Or, like with my French horn, have they unceremoniously left the Christian faith at the door and moved on to find some other way of fitting in and fitting their soul in to the way of the world. This is a sobering reality for today's church. And it will be for our lifetimes. And we'll have to decide, I think, whether or not all of this is worth our time and effort. And we'll have to accept that more and more people every year will consider all of this and what we do and what we love, the instrument that we play, they'll consider it foolish. And it will have to politely endure, I think, the way that others that call themselves Christian will look to quick fixes to right the ship 
and get the church back to where it used to be. For instance, you might have heard the question, have you been born again? Or have you asked Jesus into your heart? Oftentimes, I think this is one of those quick fixes. It is a question used as a strategy to lead to something that we call the sinner's prayer, which, when said, is thought to presto changeo, give that person, the sayer of the sinner's prayer, eternal life. That's a pretty good prayer. And, as a result, the sinner's prayer and its magic is thought to keep a person hopelessly devoted to the church as we remember it. It is a quick fix. Which is strange enough, but if the pretext seems wonky, the subtext, I think, is much worse. See, often when I've heard this question asked, it has not even meant, have you asked Jesus into your heart? When I've heard it asked many times, I've heard it asked as, will you cognitively consent to what I'm telling you about Jesus? Which usually means, will you cognitively consent to the verses that I've cherry-picked to illustrate the teachings of Jesus? Will you cognitively consent to the shame that I tell you that Jesus wants you to feel about your debt, about your divorce, about your doubts, about your delinquency in attending church every Sunday? Will you cognitively consent to pushing down the ones that I tell you Jesus says need pushing down? Base it on skin color. Base it on gender. Base it on income. Base it on who they love or what they're addicted to. You choose. You can't do it all. But make sure someone stays down. There has to be a hierarchy. Will you cognitively consent to handing over your ability to think and reason to me, the one who knows the most about Jesus? See, I'm all for asking Jesus into your heart. I'm rather evangelical about that, in fact. But I'm for none of that. I'm all for asking Jesus into your heart. I'm all for this idea of being born again in, in turning your life over to the goodness, to the richness of who God is. But I'm for none of that hierarchy and control. Why? Because John 3.16, that's why. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One of those verses that you can only read or say in the King James Version. <laughs> but, you say, this scripture and the story about Nicodemus being born again around it is the one most often attached to asking Jesus into your heart saying the sinner's prayer, and locking down eternal life. 
It's the, it's the verse that gets put up on signs at football games. It's the one that every good Christian can recite from memory in the King James Version. It is the quintessential quick fix Bible verse. It's the one that says, if you believe this way, if you cognitively consent to what I tell you about Jesus, you get to go to heaven. Only it doesn't. The key, I think, in reframing what this verse can mean, what it can teach us, is re-examining, is in re-examining the word believe. I appreciate Diana Butler Bass, who explains that to believe in Latin, the shaping language for much of Western theological thought, is opinor, meaning opinion, which was not typically a religious word. Instead, Latin used credo, which means I set my heart upon, I give my loyalty to, as the word to describe religious believing. She says, in medieval English, the concept of credo was translated as believe, meaning roughly the same thing as the German cousin believen, to prize, to treasure, to hold dear, which comes from the root word lieb, which means love. And if I didn't pronounce the German right, talk to me after so I can <laughs> fix it for the 11 o'clock service. But here's the thing, thus in early English, to believe was actually to beloved. And isn't that beautiful? To believe is actually to beloved. It's not about cognitive consent. It's about something else. Someone said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That's what we're headed for. That's what asking Jesus into your heart can mean, not for presto changeo, eternal life magic, not for belief as cognitive consent, but to lead people, people who have long since left the instrument at the door, to lead them toward this kind of longing, the longing that the violin apprentices had, this loyalty to the mystical beloving of the only begotten son and everything he stood for and he died for and he was raised for and he reigns in heaven for. So let me ask you, Kirk in the Hills, have you asked Jesus into your heart? Do you have a loyalty towards this mystical beloving of the only begotten Son and all that he is? I was asked recently about what we preach about at a church like Kirk in the Hills, and I hope, I hope we're preaching about living out that corrective and inspirational love for God. I hope that we preach about it so that the instrument of faith is played, not just in private studios or as solo performances, but as symphonic arrangements in the public sphere. That, I think, is what we have in this month of service that lays before us. It is a symphonic arrangement in the public sphere. Today we celebrate All Saints Sunday and we remember how many of our former section leaders have gone on before us, making room for others to take their chair. 
We stand in holy solidarity with those that miss their sound. Part of what it means to be a symphony is for some to be able to rest while others play. We celebrate our 50-year members nodding to the richness of their long-time musical prowess. But in this ensemble, there is room for all, not just those who play the notes well, but also for those that are still deciding on what musical instrument is theirs to play. They're looking at the sheet music for the very first time. They're squawking when they meant to synchronize. This November and going forward, it will take all the players. It will take all the instruments, even the French horn, to make the kind of sound that beats back the noise of anger and frustration that has become the soundtrack of our lives. And so, allow me to count you in. One, two, one, two, three, four. Amen. <laughs>